read together in Mark chapter 13, verse 28. Mark chapter 13, from verse 28. I'm reading in the Revised Standard Version. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But of that hour, of the, uh, sorry, but of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you I say to all, watch. Then this evening we are going to read in the letter to the Romans. A letter to the Romans, chapter 11. And from verse 11. I'm re reading in the revised version. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? But I speak to you that are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles I glorify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are my flesh, and may save some of them. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And if the first fruit is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive, wast grafted in among them, and didst become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, glory not over the branches. But if thou gloriest, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root, thee. Thou wilt say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, by their unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by thy faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, neither will he spare thee. Behold then the goodness and severity of God, 
toward them that fell severity, but toward thee, God's goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part has befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved, for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you they also may obtain mercy. For God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This evening we come to these verses from um, verse 28 in Mark 13. We've entitled this whole discourse, whole of chapter 13, the final public manifestation in glory of the rejected servant of the law. And we have uh, dealt uh, with uh, the foretelling of the temple's destruction. We have dealt with the first um, birth pangs of the end time and the coming of Christ. We have dealt with the sign of his coming, the abomination of desolation, and also with the actual coming of the Son of Man. Now this evening we come to the parable or lesson of the fig tree. Now what did Christ mean when he said, from the fig tree learn its lesson, or in the revised version, from the fig tree learn its parable. The word translated lesson in the revised standard version is the same word translated in many other places, parable. Indeed, 
If you turn to Luke and chapter 21 and verse 28, he uses the word in such a way that it can only be translated by the word parable. And you'll see that your revised standard version does in fact translate it by the word parable. Chapter 21 verse 28. But when these things begin to come to pass, I'm sorry, that's, that's not right. 29, I'm so sorry. And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. He spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. What is the meaning of this lesson? What does this parable portray or signify? As over the whole of this, of this discourse there has been much controversy, much discussion, and much uh, great variety of interpretation as to exactly what the lesson or parable of the fig tree really is. Is it to be understood only as a picture of spring? pointing to the coming summer? Or is there some reference here to the Jewish people? Many would say that it is to be restricted wholly to the former meaning. Christ used the fig tree as an illustration, many would say, using one of the most common fruit trees found in the whole of Palestine. From nature, he illustrated the way we know that winter has ended and summer is approaching. Thus, such would say, the lesson is simply that when we see these things he has told us coming to pass, we should know that his coming is very near. Those who hold this view refer to Luke 21, and that verse we've read, verse 29, for confirmation. They say that Luke deliberately added the phrase, the fig tree and all the trees, to destroy any expansion of its meaning to include the Jewish people. In other words, Matthew speaks of the fig tree, behold the fig tree, or take the fig tree, learn its lesson. Mark does the same. But Luke says, he spoke a parable to them, behold the fig tree and all the trees. And they say this addition uh, was, is a deliberate addition by Luke to, um, to stop any um, expansion of the uh, lesson to include more than just a pointing to coming summer. Certainly, we have to say, as far as the destruction of the temple and city uh, was concerned in 70 AD, it would appear to support that view. Uh, there was no question at that point in history of the Jewish people regaining their uh, sovereignty and independence. 
quite the opposite. It marked the end of nationhood, it marked the end of national sovereignty, and it marked the end of national territory. It marked, in fact, the dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. So if we take it to be just a matter of the destruction of the temple and the city in AD 70, then it would certainly support the view that all we have is an illustration of the way to tell summer is coming. Yet, why refer especially to the fig tree with its many associations? Why not take some other tree? Now, of course, you will try to catch me out and say, well, of course, the olive tree, the vine, both of those were also symbols of the Jewish people or of the covenant people of God. But why not take the almond? I think that's a marvellous tree. Furthermore, the almond, as we, I think most of us know, is a type of resurrection because it is the first tree to break into leaf and flower in Palestine. So it would be a perfect example of the coming uh, summer in many ways. Or if you have something against the almond tree, why not take um, the pomegranate? Um, uh, it's a quite sort of innocuous uh, little uh, bush-like tree, which um, whilst it had spiritual meaning, uh, was never quite used in the same way as the olive or the vine or the fig tree. Or, if we didn't, if uh, it was just a question of summer, and we want to take one or, or other of these trees, or we don't want to take one or other of those trees, why not just simply say, behold the trees, when they become tender, and put forth their leaf, you know summer is near. Then there can be no misinterpretation, and it's as good an illustration as calling it, as identifying it as the fig tree. I hope I've got that clear. Let us carefully note a few things. First, the fig tree, along with the vine and the olive tree, had always been used as symbols in the Old Testament. They had been used firstly, and this is often forgotten, as symbols of the promised land itself, the very territory. We again and again get the phrase, sitting under his fig tree. Every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree. It was a symbol of possession in the promised land, a, a, a symbol of inheritance in the promised land. Each one would have their own little bit of the territory and would have their own bit of prosperity and plentiful abundance, so different to Egypt, so different to the wilderness. If you want to look at a few references here um, in this matter, look at Deuteronomy <coughs> chapter 8 and verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 8. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. 1 Kings, chapter 4, verse 25. 1 Kings 4, 
And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, not every single child of God had a vine and a fig tree. It's a symbol. Um, you've got it again in 2 Kings, uh, chapter 18. 2 Kings, chapter 18, verse 31. No, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh. Alright. I've got one kings. Every one of his fig tree, that's right, and eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree. And drink ye every one of the waters of his own system. There are a number of others I can think of straight away. I can think of Haggai chapter 2 and uh, verse 19, which says, Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. There are many, many such references. So firstly, it was used of the promised land itself and of possession of it, of a plentiful abundance that there was in that land. And secondly, it was used as symbols, uh, the fig tree, the vine, the olive, of the covenant people of God themselves. Look at Joel, chapter 1. Joel, chapter 1. And uh, verse 7, He hath laid my vine waste, speaking of the enemy, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. He was speaking, of course, of the people of God, of Israel. Or again, you have the same thought in Hosea chapter 9 and verse um, 1. Again, I'm afraid I... Sorry, I, I, that's wrong again. I'm awful sorry. Verse, uh, 10. verse 10, is it? My sight seems to be going. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at its season. That's right. Thank you very much. Um... The popular mind, in, in the popular mind, in New Testament times, the fig tree had associations, therefore, with the land itself and the people of God. So that's the first thing to bear in mind. The second is Christ, it would appear, deliberately used the fig tree for the lesson or illustration. Luke has shown us that he, Luke, was not afraid to substitute a word for a well-known phrase if he thought it made the meaning clearer. For instance, he substituted the word armies for the abomination, for the phrase, the abomination of desolation, because he felt it made the um, saying clearer. So he's not afraid of that. Why then did he not simply say, when ye see all the trees? <clears throat> Why does he put it in this rather striking way, behold the fig tree and all the trees. Instead, 
it seems to me, he draws attention, even more than Mark and Matthew, to the fact that it was the fig tree. Thirdly, the rejection and judgment of the fig tree in Mark 11 is being cursed and it's withering away underlies so much in these chapters 11, 12 and 13. If it is not the major theme in these chapters, it is certainly one of the major themes. And Mark has shown more than a little skill in both the way he relates and compares events. For instance, take the denunciation of the scribes and then he immediately follows it with the commendation of one poor widow. Are we really to believe that the rejection of the fig tree, its cursing and its withering away, a little earlier in the same record, in the same passage basically, has no relation at all to this reference to the fig tree in chapter 13 and verse 20? Fourthly, Christ knew very well the impression the cursing of the fig tree had made upon these disciples. Now in all probability on the very same day in which they had drawn his attention earlier in the morning to the withered fig tree, he says to them, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Even the way Christ spoke here seems to hark back to the earlier incident, in my estimation. Whereas earlier the fig tree had withered from the roots, now he speaks of it becoming tender and putting forth leaves. Earlier it had been an acted parable to do with a fig tree. Now it was a spoken parable concerning a fig tree. Fifthly, it is hard to believe that these two incidents are unrelated. If they are, then it seems most unfortunate, without approaching blasphemy or irreverence, to say the least that the fig tree was used here as an illustration at all. Its use is misleading and certainly open to misinterpretation. Knowing the care with which the spirit of truth has both inspired and governed the writing of the scriptures, it is much more likely that these two incidents concerning the fig tree are in fact related. Therefore, it seems reasonably clear to me that we have in this verse a reference to the Jewish people an infinitely gracious intimation that toward the end of the age something would happen to the judged, dispersed and despised Jewish people and furthermore that what would happen to them would in itself be another sign of the coming, of the near coming of the Lord. Let us sum up then. The lesson of the fig tree is firstly 
that when we see the events which Christ has predicted in these previous verses being fulfilled, we shall know with absolute certainty that his coming is at hand. As surely as summer follows spring, as the bursting into leaf of the trees betoken the coming summer, so as surely will Christ's coming follow these events. There is about this an unshakable and glorious certainty. How wonderful the Lord is that he has clearly told us what we are not to look upon as the sign of the end, but only the birth pangs of the last phase ushering in the end time. And then he has told us clearly what is the sign when we shall know that he is right at the gates. We don't know how long it will be, what, how long the period will be, but we shall know that he's right, how gracious the Lord is. From the fig tree learn its lesson. When its branches become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is, na is nigh. When ye see these things coming to pass, know that he is near at the very gates. So that's firstly the lesson of the fig tree. Let no one think that he will ever stand before God and say, I didn't realize. Please excuse me. I'm sorry I was dull, I was apathetic, I was asleep, I was drifting. I'm sorry that those issues were not settled. Please forgive me. Please excuse me. I was a bit dim. I didn't quite see. There will be absolutely no excuse at all for any single child of God. The dumbest of us, the most stupid of us, has the word of God. And the Lord Jesus has so clearly put forth here in these verses exactly what we're to look for. No, it is unbelief and compromise and sin that dull us and make us slothful and somehow or other make us to be those who can see things happening before their very eyes and somehow are paralyzed, unable to take action. Secondly, the lesson of the fig tree is that toward the end, Something will happen to the rejected and dispersed Jewish people which will be an unmistakably clear indication that his coming is near. It is not just a question of trees breaking into leaf but has a deeper and fuller significance. It is a certain kind of tree that we are to look for, the fig tree. All the other trees may be bursting into leaf Right, we've dealt with that. That's the first part of the lesson. But the second part is this, that there is a certain kind of tree that's going to become, branch is going to become tender and it's going to break forth into leaf. That will be an unmistakably clear indication that we are the generation in which the coming of the Lord is to take place. Now let us spend a little while on the lesson of the fig tree on this deeper level. There are three things that I think we need to consider. 
First of all, the deeper lesson, or the lesson of the fig tree on this deeper level, is the continuity of the Jewish people. The continuity of the Jewish people. In spite of the destruction of the temple and city, and the breakup and dispersion of the Jewish nation to the ends of the earth, in spite of the fact of those dread words of Christ, your house is left unto you desolate, and the even more dread words of the people, his blood be upon us and on our children, spelling out the judgment of God upon the nation and the beginning of 1,900 years of persecution hatred and bloodshed of exiled misery. They would still be there at the end of the age. The fig tree, in spite of the fact that it was cursed and withered away from the roots, will still be there at the end. And it will be there as a sign. Underline that. It will be there as a sign. The survival of the Jewish people through their long history of suffering and dispersion unparalleled in the annals of time. Except, I might say, by the history of the true Church of God is miraculous. Many other nations, many other peoples, in their day much more famous, much more established, and much more powerful than the Jewish uh, people, have long since disappeared, swallowed up and absorbed into new nations and new people. Today it's impossible to identify such peoples anymore. For example, I think of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were an amazing nation, an amazing people. Babylon was one of the great wonders of the world. So fabulous that it was thought to be legendary, mythical until archaeologists began to discover under the sands a city of such dimensions, of such building, buildings of such architectural design that they realized they were dealing with something that was one of the peaks of human civilization. Where had they gone? Can you tell a Babylonian by his nose? Can you tell a Babylonian by his coloring? Can you tell a Babylonian by his religion? They've disappeared, swallowed up into other nations, into other peoples. You cannot find them, you cannot identify them. Take the Assyrians, one of the hardest, cruelest and strongest nations that the world has ever seen. Take Nineveh, a city that we're told, well, its suburbs, its outer suburbs like London, Greater Nineveh, took three days to cross. 
I'm you. We used to laugh at that account until again archaeologists have uncovered something and discovered that it wasn't just the actual city but all the suburbs that together made up greater Nineveh. What an empire it was. What a culture it was. What a civilization it had. What has happened to the Assyrians? Where are the Assyrians today? They're swallowed up, absorbed. But I can come much farther. I can come much nearer home. Where is that extraordinary tribe called Gauls? If you ever heard of them. What about those other people called Normans? What about the Lombards? Have you ever heard of them? What has happened to these peoples? There are many others. We could go on. They've been absorbed into a new conglomeration, into, a, as it were, with others, into producing new nations, new peoples. They disappeared without trace, without facing anything remotely near what the Jewish people have faced over 1,900 years of attempt after attempt after attempt, systematic, consistent, to destroy them. The Jewish people's survival, their continuity, is the evidence of God in human history. They are a sign to the nations that God directs and governs history. All the nations of the world know about the Jewish people tonight. They cannot override them. They cannot bypass them. They are there whether we agree with it or not, whether we like them or we don't like them. They are there as a sign amongst the nations that God is the one who directs and governs human history. And that if God says a nation will survive, that nation will survive, though all hell come out against it. And if God says that nation will disappear, that nation will disappear, though every means, scientific and other, are used to keep it alive and to preserve it. The fig tree is still there. That's part of the lesson. Of course, for all of us, we have the wisdom of hindsight. We all look back and now we can say, of course, of course, the Jewish people are still with us. We all know it. We probably meet with them day by day. We cannot get away from them. They're everywhere. So we accept the fact. But in actual fact, what we have to face is this. That if we had listened to the Lord's own words, if we had then seen him die and saw him raised from the dead and ascend into glory and then lived to see the destruction of temple and city and the breakup of the nation and its dispersion to the ends of the earth, could we have ever believed that after thousands of years that people would still be there? I want you also to note in this connection 
verse 30. Verse 30. This generation, truly I say to you, now the Lord said it emphatically, truly, by the way, verily, is the word Amen. Amen. I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. This is a very difficult verse. There are those who believe that the word generation here can and should be translated race, making it refer to the continuity of the Jewish people. This race will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. It's true that the word used here is a word of rather indefinite and generalized meaning. As normally used, it meant generation. That is, a, pe uh, a period of time, uh, a group of people, a company of people, living at the same time, a generation. Sometimes it was used in a wider sense of race. It may well have been used here by Christ in this deliberately ambiguous way to include, include both ideas. This generation, this race, the continuity of the Jewish people. The second thing I want you to look at in the lesson of the fig tree on the deeper level is the reconstitution of the Jewish nation. Not the continuity of the Jewish people, but the reconstitution of the Jewish nation. The lesson here contains much more than the fact that the Jewish people will still be in existence at the end of the age. It speaks of the reconstituting of the nation. The fig tree cursed and withering away spoke of the nation rejected and dispersed. The fig tree its branches becoming tender and it's putting forth leaves, it's breaking into leaf, speaks of the nation reconstituted as a nation. Although the nation would be utterly broken and would cease to function as a nation, yet at the end the nation would again come into its own and that in spite of 1,900 years of lost nationhood, lost national sovereignty, and lost national territory. Now again, we have the wisdom of hindsight here. I still remember vividly, uh, years ago, a godly woman, I knew as aunt, Auntie Dagmar, telling me that the sign of the Lord's coming, of the nearness of his coming, would be when the Jewish people went back to Palestine and were made a nation again. Of course, at that time, it was ridiculous. Do you know it was 1944, and reports were just filtering through of the millions dying in concentration camps? The, the people were finished. And there were many other reasons I could stop and talk about that made it at that time positively laughable. British oil interests, the traditional policy of the British government to support the Arab nations because of oil, and many other things. 
made it laughable. The reconstitution of Israel in 1948 against all odds is the supreme modern miracle, in my estimation, greater than getting a man to the moon. Having been scattered into all nations for 1,900 years, and having to a certain extent absorbed the culture and conditions around them in those nations, having survived 1,900 years of persecution of pogroms, of liquidation schemes, the Holocaust of 1939, 1945, in which six million Jews died in concentration camps, in scenes which it is almost hard to believe when you think of Verb, of Auschwitz. Five enormous hangars filled with gold fillings from people's teeth. Think of it, systematic liquidation schemes to destroy one particular race of people. In spite of that, I say, the scattered Jewish people are brought together again by some sovereign and irresistible power and reconstituted a nation amongst nations, Israel so that today we see the Israeli flag, we hear about Israel continually upon the news, or we see it on television, and we even see a national airline flying two or three times a day over our head with the Israeli flag on the tail. Of course, we all take this as accepted. It's part of life. But it's a miracle. Have you ever heard of such a thing? It's as if you were to take the Welsh people and disperse them 2,000 years ago into every part of the world. Their language will become a dead language. They, as it were, to absorb to a certain extent the conditions around them in all the places that they go so that every single nation should have some scattering or sort of deposit of Welsh folk. And then, after 2,000 years, those Welsh people are drawn back against amazing odds, having spent 2,000 years in a an antagonism, fighting antagonism, persecution, bloodshed, scheme after scheme to destroy them. They are drawn back to Wales, where now those wicked English people have taken it over and they dispossess them and come back into Wales and repossess Wales for the Welsh. And a flag flies again and national songs are sung again and the Welsh language is spoken in the streets and in the university and newspapers are published in it. We would think of that as a supreme miracle. How did they stay alive? How were they somehow kept? How was their distinctiveness kept? How was it that after two millennia they should come back to the same territory? For I must say this, it is even more extraordinary 
than the reconstitution of the nation, uh, that they are brought back to the very territory from which they were dispersed, and in which the breakup of the nation took place. Of course, you know I could speak for hours on this subject. You must understand that when Zionism began, their whole idea was, of course, to people South America. They were going to buy huge tracts of Brazil and Argentina and turn it into a Jewish state. Remember that. Theodor Herzl, looked upon as the founder of Israel, of course died as a prophet, when God appeared to him in that dream, in that vision, and said, you have been raised up to bring back my people. Well, I don't know, but all I do, I understand, I recognize is the fact that at the beginning, there was no thought of going back to Israel. It has now happened. They are brought back to the promised land, back to Palestine, back to again not only nationhood and national sovereignty, but their national territory as well. And of course, we have an intimation of this in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, when it says that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That is, God has set a time for Gentile domination to finish and Jerusalem would come back under Jewish control and sovereignty. Even the language, as I have already mentioned, Hebrew, for thousands of years, a sacred language, a dead language, sacred but dead language, like Latin, becomes the spoken language of a virile nation. The fig tree has, its branches have become tender and it's put forth its leaves. The reconstitution but there is, however, a third thing, and a thing that I fear is often forgotten by those who are interested in prophecy. I want to underline it. The third thing concerning the lesson of the fig tree on this deeper level is the promise of fruit at the last. The promise of fruit at the last. The fig tree was cursed because it was barren, there was no fruit. Could not this reference to the fig tree putting forth its leaves mean that at last, through the grace and power of God alone, the Jewish people will bear fruit unto God? And that, believing in Christ, they will be brought back again into the elect people of God. I am not, of course, speaking of the whole Israeli nation willy-nilly, nor am I speaking of all Jews everywhere any more than the phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles means that all the Gentiles will be saved. I am speaking of the elect amongst the Jewish people. If you look at Romans chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, we read this. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, 
shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree, and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I wonder if there are many of us who understand that the thing we've been brought into is their own olive tree. I doubt it. There's a lot of anti-Semitism amongst Christians. And as David Mansell said a little while ago, uh, here, there are people who are thrilled to the marrow about prophecies concerning uh, Israel and concerning the Jewish people, but have absolutely no love at all for the Jewish people. Their own olive tree. It seems to me that there is no point in mentioning the fig tree here as bursting into leaf unless it speaks of summer fruitfulness. Especially when we consider it in the light of the earlier incident. No fruit, cursed, withered from the, from the root. The fig tree becoming tender, putting forth its leaves. Surely it speaks of fruit. Thus, we might well look for something far more miraculous, far more wonderful than the continuity or survival of the Jewish people, or even the reconstitution of the Jewish nation as a nation amongst nations. We might well look for a tremendous ingathering of Jewish people to Christ at the end of the age. So it shall come to pass that all Israel, the true Israel of God, the elect people of God, shall be saved unto his coming. Now I well understand, and this is my whole problem this evening, that what I have said may present you with some problems as to whether we're putting too much into the fig tree. But just wait. In all this, we see the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, the infinite love and infinite mercy. I'm well aware that in touching this matter, we are touching something that reaches back into eternity past and reaches on into eternity to come, that spans the whole of time and, listen to me, will finally explain it. What we have talked about this evening, you will find out one day, will finally explain time. We are in fact touching the mystery of divine election. 
we can never fully comprehend the mystery of God's predestinating power and will. I use the word predestinating deliberately. If we stumble at it, good. We ought to stumble if we can be stumbled at such a thing. It shows there's some arrogance and some pride in us. None of us can comprehend the predestinating power and will of God. We only know that behind it lies infinite love and infinite justice. Sometimes we forget that in the wise and never-failing counsels of God, the falling away of the Jewish people had to be. That as things were, the Gentiles could never have been reached and brought into God's eternal purpose and saving grace. But by the ending of Jewish nationhood and their dispersion throughout the world, there would have been no fullness of the Gentiles unless temple and city had been destroyed. We also forget that we have been brought into something which has its root in the Old Testament and which carries everything that has followed. Your father is Abraham as much as any saved Jew. When we deal with this matter we just we just don't understand the ways of God. But the church we talk about did not begin with the New Testament. It goes back to Abraham, who is the father of all who believe. There is some tremendous mystery of divine election that took hold of Abraham and never stopped. Not that all Jews are Jews, but the true Israel was within the Israel. And true Jewry was within Jewry. I wish I could put it more clearly. I can only take a few scriptures and read them to you. Romans chapter 11, verse 16. If the first fruit is holy, so is the lump. If the root is holy, so also the branches. Verse 17 and 18. If some of the branches are broken off, and thou, being a wild olive, wast grafted in among them, and didst become partaker with them, of the root, of the fatness, of the olive tree, that's all from the Old Testament, glory not over the branches. But if thou glorious, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root thee. Isn't that marvellous? And if you've got anything to glory about, glory about the fact that your father's Abraham. They all belong to you, and you belong to them. 
That's what you should glory about. Take Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Well, you see, once we start, we won't know where to stop. Wherefore, remember that once ye, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that ye were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God. Do you see, he says you're all alienated from it. Now listen to what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, ye that once were far off, are made nigh. You've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Chapter, same chapter, verse 19. So then ye are no more strangers and sojourners, but ye are fellow citizens. Chapter 3, verse 4. Whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, to wit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in the Messiah Jesus through the gospel. Well, I don't know where, where to stop. Galatians 3, verse 29. If you're Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Think of that. I think of Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God hath come to naught, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel, neither because they are Abraham's seed are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, it is not the children of the flesh that are children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned for the seed. Chapter 2. Verse 28, 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is, is that of the, of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Chapter 4, verse 9, Is this blessing then pronounced upon the circumcision, that's upon Jews, or upon the uncircumcision, Gentiles? For we say to Abraham, his faith was reckoned for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was in uncircumcision, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that's Gentiles, that righteousness might be reckoned unto them. And the father of the circumcision... Jews, to them who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, the elect people of God. Well, so much more. When you come to Revelation chapter 21, people ask me, is there going to be a future for the Jewish nation as a nation? I don't know. But what I do know is there's no spiritual future except in Christ. And when you come to Revelation chapter 21, what do we find? We find the 12 gates, the 12 patriarchs. Reuben, Judah, Simeon, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. They're all there, 12 patriarchs. Look at the foundations, and there are the 12 apostles. Peter, John, James, so on, so on, so on. So you've got the 12 apostles and the 12 fathers. That is, the elect people of God from the Old Testament, the elect people of God from the New, Jew and Gentile. Now, we must finish. 
when the predestinating power and grace of God has drawn in the fullness of the Gentiles, then that hardening which has befallen Israel will be removed with the most glorious consequences. Oh, I'm just longing for the day. The most glorious consequences. What an outburst it's going to be when that veil is removed that uh, is on Jewish hearts. Again, uh, in the notes you'll find a whole lot of scriptures. But you'll find at least one we can look at together. Romans 11 and verse 25. <laughs> For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, as Gentiles, that are hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That doesn't mean that God is waiting for the last one, but when the great mass have been gathered in, then the hardening that has fallen upon Israel will be removed. Now, let me just go back again to what I said. This, we are face to face with the mystery of divine election. Why? Listen to these words. Chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah crieth concerning Israel, if the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth, finishing it and cutting it short. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, did God cast off his people? God forbid. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not cast off his people, which he foreknew. Verse 5. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. What then? That which Israel seeketh for, that he obtained not. But the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, chapter 11 uh, and verse 11. By therefore, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. I say those who begin even faintly to understand all this realize that they're face to face with the mystery of election, the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It's beyond our finite minds to unravel or comprehend. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul, with his great understanding, says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. They're beyond us. What we do know is this. That if the rejection of the Jewish people meant the unsearchable riches of Christ for the Gentiles, what can their restoration mean but even greater fullness? And if you've come into something which has bowled you over with the infinite mercy and grace of God, you just wait till the hardening that has befallen Israel is removed. If their casting away meant the reconciliation of the Gentile world, what will their receiving again mean but life 
from the dead. Something altogether new. It will be nothing less than the finishing of the mystery of God. Now, if you turn to Revelation 10, and verse 7, this is one of the strangest chapters in Revelation. Why? Because a tremendous thing happened here, and it was the only time God said, don't write it. You're not to say a single word of this. But what we are told is that here, verse 4, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound, then is finished the mystery of God according to the good tidings which he declared to his servants, the prophets. I don't know if I've been able to put anything over to you at all of this amazing matter. The prospect is so wondrous, so filled with glory, so commensurate with the grace and the character of the God we know. But it is no wonder to me that Paul breaks forth into a pean of praise. We're dealing with something which none of us really understand. Most of us, we've got, all of us, I suppose, have got Gentile backgrounds. And we understand naturally, we come to the Lord, we rejoice in his salvation. It's just glorious to us. We forget that somehow there's a tremendous history behind it. And that in actual fact, most of the work and dealings of God in the past have centered in what we call Jewish people. <coughs> And then there came that great sudden burst out to all the nations of the earth to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. But the final word is this, so shall all Israel be saved. You're Israel, I'm Israel. So shall all Israel, the true Israel of God, how can we explain it? Ultimately, we can never get beyond the simple but profound cry from the heart of God. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. <coughs> it says in Romans 11 and verse 28, it says, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. But beloved of God for the Father's sake. Isn't that wonderful? Never forget that. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake. So that you could come into it. But they are loved. For the Father's sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Isn't that marvelous? Absolutely marvelous. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God will not cast off then his people from of old, will he cast you off? 
If God is so infinitely faithful, so infinitely merciful, so infinitely loving, can we not trust him? The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't. There are a few places, therefore, in the whole history of God's dealings with men, where his faithfulness, his love, and his mercy shine more radiantly than here. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Have you got the lesson? If God can be so faithful, so faithful, then can we not trust him? I'm going to finish there and just draw something on the board for you. Just may help you to understand, then we'll finish uh, completely. I finished there and I wasn't going to do anything next week, but We'll go on and finish the last verses next week. I think that's the best way to do it. But let's get this wonderful thing in. God has not cast off the Jewish people. Far from it. In the mystery of divine election, they had to fall so that the Gentiles could be saved. And when the fullness of that number of Gentiles is brought in, then the heart that has befallen them will be removed. Now, if we were to take this, now you know I'm no good at sort of drawing things of spell. Right? Right. Now, here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. We could go on, of course, with quite a few more. So God started something with Abraham, and he continued it with Isaac and Jacob, through Moses and David, until finally Messiah came. Messiah, who according to the flesh, was Jewish. So we can say that although there were many Gentiles here, Bathsheba was a Gentile, Job was a Gentile, Tamar, the wife of Judah, was a Gentile, Rahab was a Gentile, Ruth was a Gentile, there are many Gentiles, yet the vast 
majority. Would you Now, it is a sobering fact, when you come to the New Testament and to the early church, Peter, James, John, Paul, they're all Jewish. this point, Paul's death, the temple and city were destroyed, and the people were dispersed to the ends of the earth. The nation was lost. The territory was lost. The Jewish nation as a nation was finished. And then began the great era, the era of the Gentiles. Now, at the end, those branches that have been put aside so that wild olive branches could be brought in, at the end, we expect a great ingathering of Jewish people again. So, all Israel It's not that God, of course, is interested in ethnic things or in racial things at all. It's the elect people. That's the point. Not all Jews here were, are in Israel, you know, any more than all so-called Christians are in Christ. It's the elect people of God. The line runs right through the true people of God. It's got to be glorious. Maybe there's going to the abomination of desolations coming. Maybe the old Antichrist is coming. Maybe darkness is going to cover the earth. But we've got this to look forward to. And we're told that this, people are looking for a great revival. They're looking for some great awakening. But the word of God says, what will their receiving again be but life from the dead? If that's not a revival, what do you want? I say it would be tremendous. Tremendous burst. Why? Because it's as if the whole of heaven's been cramped, held in, waiting for this event. And when it happens, it's as if the, the, the cork comes off. And the whole art comes as if heaven says, Praise God, the mystery's finished. The thing God started here is finished here. It's done! The top stone's in. Now we often think of the top stone as just something to do with the church as if that's a kind of Gentile thing. It's not. The top stone is in this whole thing. That's why the prophecy was given to Zechariah. The, the candle, the lampstand, the whole thing. God's going to finish it. Well, may he help to give us understanding. Shall we bow together and ask him to do it? Dear Lord, 
Thou seest our weakness and our inability to really comprehend or understand things that are quite beyond us. But Lord, our prayer together is that thy Holy Spirit will give us divine enlightenment and divine understanding. If there are wrong ideas with, from which we need to be delivered, deliver us, we pray, by thy power from all false conceptions and ideas. But, oh, Lord, shine into our hearts, we pray, that we might be a people who know how to pray and for what to pray in this connection. Thou hast said, from the fig tree, learn its parable or its lesson. Oh, Lord, may we learn the lesson, both in its initial primary meaning and in this, on this deeper uh, level. Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee. We praise thee for what we see thou art doing in the world. And we praise thee, Lord, for what we see that thou art doing in world jury. The great quickening of interest, Lord. The many, many who recognize somehow or other, perhaps poorly, perhaps rather shallowly, that Jesus was the Messiah. And that the sufferings that have come upon them can be explained in no other way. Oh, Lord, we pray that since the Holy Spirit is the one Father who is in charge of this whole work, that he will find a way of putting that burden into our hearts, that ministry of intercession, that travailing ministry, Lord, concerning the finishing of the mystery. So, Lord, together we commit ourselves to thee, May this poor evening be used by thy spirit beyond our wildest ideas to influence us, to mold us in a right way so that, Lord, we become more and more alive to what thou art really seeking to do and have an open heart toward thyself. We ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.